This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And Roman is present. And Jonathan, last week, no, well, actually, last weekend, the DA had their something conference, I can't remember. Yes. Which conference? It's it's in the sort of um, national conference. Right. And on the way here, I saw posters uh, with the star, I think it was, was the citizen, and it says, DA in race war. And I'm like, what is this? And then you read about it, and no, they're just having a conversation about quotas and diversity and things like that. So... So I think there's a couple of things there. One is that remember it's a it's a it's a conference. Uh, it's the uh, federal congress, and and as far as I understand, there are many 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 things on the table. It's the same as the ANC having their uh, sort of uh, sure the conference in conference December. in December, <laughs> and uh, you know what you hear in the news was discussed. You'll hear oh no, no they discussed uh, land. And uh, that was the big thing discussed. But actually, there might have been 40 other things discussed. And in two years' time, there'll be a bill on something that you're like, where did this come from? But actually, it was discussed at the conference. Sure. So there are many things on the table. I think we need to be careful about what the things that the media highlights. Uh, with the DA, it's always going to be something around race because they always, they always, even in their supposedly impartial uh, approach, uh, they want to remind you that the DA is the white party, you see. Right. And meanwhile, it's probably the most diverse party. And I'm talking racially, ideologically, gender, not genderally. That's not a word. But in terms of gender. Well, they may uh, have 72 genders in the DA. Who knows? Uh, so they do quite well on that front, but it's always, you know, so-called the white party. And, um, and they're discussing these things. And it's fine. They should discuss. Them. There's nothing wrong with that. I just hope they don't focus on quotas yeah. and things like that and worry about the fundamental issues, which is freedom, property rights, yeah. and freedom of speech. The last one, not so much anymore, I'm afraid. Yeah, I, th- I think I think they the, the messaging is, is really where the problem is, and they need to override this, this media wave, which keeps getting them caught up, where they, they keep getting caught up in that whole race-based um, issue, and they need to kind of go, this is who we are, either accept it or you don't, and we're not discussing it anymore. We're, we're over with that. We've got lots of other important things to discuss. Uh, this weekend, one of the things on the table, apparently, uh, well, past weekend, if you're listening to this now, uh, is is uh, the child support grants. They they want to consider doubling that. Uh, you know, widely amongst the right has been derided as something which is uh, very bad. We don't have the money to double the super child support grants, and it's appealing to populism. Uh, an F, an EFF position. Uh, yeah, um, but, but there may be good reasons for doubling the child yeah. grant, provided there are cuts in other in other areas, or they you know restricted to the first child only, sure, and not to the sure. two or three that follow. Yeah, I've got a I've got a bit of a nuanced position on that, which we can discuss another time. We'll have a solo show soon, uh, but. To discuss a bit about the DA historically now uh, and uh, where South Africa is kind of going, someone who was very intimately involved uh, still is very much has his ear to the ground uh, and uh, has long been requested as a guest on the show. Uh, joining us on the line from Cape Town is Mr. Tony Leon, the former leader of the Democratic Alliance. Afternoon, Tony. Uh, thanks for joining us and uh, welcome to the show. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Right, Ramon, I think, has uh, his first question for you. 
Well, uh, yeah, well, let's, let's start with the current president. Um, so you, you wrote a piece, uh, saying that he's going to change politics and the DA needs to, you know, step up to the plate and support him if he's, uh, rooting out corruption. Uh, that piece was taken out of context in some regards. Um, but you've known him for, for, for many, many years, you know, since the Cadessa days, in fact. Um, what do you think about him back then and now? Do you think he's the same person? Well, I don't know because I last saw Cyril Ramaphosa's about 10 years ago, so I haven't seen him recently. And I missed his migration to the world of business and his uh, return back to Parliament happened after I left it. So my knowledge and memory of him goes back to a previous era, I suppose. And he's a very effective man. He's a very intelligent. He's uh, sophisticated. I mean, as a thinker and a strategist, I think all that is uh, to his uh, credit and I think will be to the country's credit. Um, I also think he's got a pretty unerring eye for the main chance, and I don't mean that uh, disparagingly, because uh, he knows what he wants, and he generally gets what he wants. Uh, Certainly, that was my experience of him during the negotiations, and also in his capacity, although it's on the other side of him, obviously, when he was Secretary General of the ANC. And um, so I I have quite a high regard for his abilities and for his... uh, understanding of the environment in which he's in. He's also got, uh, perhaps Jacob Zuma had as well, so it's not necessarily an advantage. He's got you know, pretty good good doses of charm, and he's, uh, he's uh, very articulate. And I, I, again, that is an attribute that, uh, that I think counts. Jacob Zuma was both innumerate and inarticulate. And I, so in all respects, I think he's a vast improvement. Okay, so given given that, uh, let's go back a little bit. Uh, you know, w- when you were in charge of the DA in '94, the election poster was all about freedom, federalism, and free enterprise. If you're a classical liberal, even if you're libertarian, that sounds like a very uh, good sort of uh, set of values uh, to be. Well, it, did, it didn't go down very well. With the electorate, we got one point. Uh, 1. 7% of the votes. I wasn't the leader then, incidentally. I became the leader after that mm. deluge uh, w- disaster. W- well, the, you know, posters even in the following election were not dissimilar in, in, the, in, in the idea, although perhaps a little bit more watered down or explained to the voter. Um, I, I'm trying to get to – we have a DA that's uh, 20 years ago is – 25 years ago is, is – is, telling us all about what is really liberalism and, and, and what's now classical liberalism, I would suppose. Uh, and um, it's a very different-looking party today. Uh, what do you think has happened over the past 25 years to change that? And uh, is it, is it, do they no longer stand for those values, or is it just uh, messaged uh, incorrectly or in a different way? Well, I don't know exactly. I mean, I'm in touch with the party and some of its leading figures, uh, and I think there's, it's a much big, it, it's a much bigger party than it was. Although, I mean, it, it grew under my leadership very uh, significantly, but it's grown uh, further since, which of course is the idea of politics is to increase your market share. I think there's been in recent times a desire to perhaps dilute or water down some of those values and principles that were articulated early on. And I fully understand that political parties, including the ones that I led, have to be pragmatic. They're not churches or narrow sectional interest groups. They are broad political movements. 
But I think there's always a danger that if you get too far off your, the seedlings that you start don't grow significant and sturdy roots, then you can uh, land up twisting in the wind. And I think we've seen a bit of that recently in the party. I, I, but I don't think it's uh, it's clear one way or the other. I think there's there's quite an interesting contest actually going on this weekend for what the party's core values are about. And maybe something will emerge with clarity after their uh, Congress in Pretoria. Yes, quite. And that's happening this weekend. Uh, well, for the listeners, it was last weekend. Uh, so in terms of specifics, what are you worried about in terms of perhaps the, the more populist doctrines that are emerging? Uh, personally, I saw it's still up in the air, but Musi said he would like to, you know, double the child grant, for example. And Gwen Ingwenya, who's the policy head, said, no, it's just on the table. It's not a decision. Um, so, I mean, that's, also, that's, that's something that, you know, that's an EFF, it's in the EFF manifesto for the past five years now. So people are struggling yes, to find look, an I identity mean, within the... I'm not, I'm not a believer in the magic money tree, to quote uh, what some of about Jeremy Corbyn's policies in the UK, because they've all got to be paid for at the end of the day. And the question is, you know, we've got a 50 billion rand black hole in our fiscus at the moment. So how this would be paid for or costed, I have not, not the slightest idea. Uh, but, you know, if the DA is going to be true to its uh, fiscal conservatism, which it still espouses, incidentally, then presumably you can make savings on some items and you can uh, locate them somewhere else. But I just think pushing huge amounts of money into current consumption rather than into longer term investment for the country and the communities in the country is problematic. But I'm not an expert on how the DA would propose to fund to fund its latest uh, proposal. Yeah, I, mean, I tend to agree with you. However, specifically for the DA, it seems to wrestle a lot with these with these ideological issues, whereas the ANC flip flop very frequently without much fanfare, and the EFF are just you know intransigent on one aspect or one issue, which is the land, incidentally. But the DA seems to get a lot of flack from us, especially. And from their own voters about just give us, you know, the 10 bullet points and then we can see whether we agree with them or not. They, they seem to get a lot more heat for their lack of direction than at the other parties. Well, I think, first of all, uh, if you're a governing party, I mean, a national government, you tend to uh, be judged not so much by what you say, but by what you do. And uh, I suppose the ANC gets a lot of flack for what it does or doesn't do. The DA can't do anything, or no opposition party can at a national level. So what it says, or what it uh, says it says, or contradicts itself saying, tends to get more attention because that's all it's got is a bullhorn or a megaphone, and it can propose, it can't dispose of things. I think that is just a structural explanation why an opposition party. Uh, the other thing is, of course, the DA is much bigger than the EFF. It's about three or four times as large. And it it actually governs in a few places where EFF governs nowhere. So it's uh, it's probably you know of more. It's it if there are U turns or uh, zigzags, they do tend to get picked up. I also think the other reason is, and this is to the DA's credit, it was ever thus. Even when I first led, it had seven MPs. There were seven people with huge personalities and many uh, disagreements. Is that the DA is. Um, is in the political sense a broad church. So there are people there who don't all come from the same dump cling as they say in Afrikaans and 
the party has been on a pretty rapid growth path until recently, so it's accumulated quite a lot of uh, joiners later on in this journey, and it's grafted them together, and sometimes, you know, they speak with different voices. So I think it's also the consequence of the party's relatively rapid growth that it hasn't just been uh, of one mind or one sectional viewpoint. Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but I, I do get the sense of risk. You know, the Catholic Church was a broad church too before uh, it, it split and, you know, there were all the other offshoots for, for the reasons that you're basically alluding to, which is people come from different backgrounds with different views. Uh, one would like to believe that the DA uh, presents some sort of principled stand uh, in a certain section of politics, at least. Uh, so that can be quite broad. And obviously, you know, we know that uh, we've got uh, someone like Helen Ziller, who basically uh, believes in the capable state and is a essentially a social democrat, uh, all the way to someone like Michael Cardo, who sits in parliament, who, who is essentially a classical liberal. Um, so we've, we've got that. That, that, that doesn't uh, strike me as a problem, having those voices within the party. But, but when we start having, uh, and I say we because I am a DA voter, uh, when we start having uh, voices in the party that are clearly illiberal, uh, who are saying things like, well, maybe we should uh, support race-based uh, discrimination or maybe we should look at the whole concept of expropriation without compensation instead of dismissing it out of hand as any liberal should do. Um, that uh, strikes me as a, as a major issue. Yeah, I think that is an issue. I look, I'm not sure that uh, – well, there might be people in the party who want to look at expropriation without compensation. That would be a complete fundamental uh, betrayal of a core principal mm. pillar – of the party, um, they haven't adopted that position. They've yeah. taken a pretty definite they, they, they have on that, but on other issues, I think. Sorry. Well, you see, a few years ago when the party and parliament initially decided to support this uh, employment equity amendment bill, which I deposed the principal act when I was the leader of the party, I took very – and I don't do it very often – I took a very sharp position against them in public, and others did. And then Helen Ziller, who was then the leader of the party, then reversed the party position, and there was a whole – explanation as to what you called an anatomy of a plane crash or a train wreck or something. And they did come to the right conclusion, having gone through a very messy process. So I think it does depend on the leader or the, broad, or the, or the core leadership of the party. If they are liberal or they stick pretty closely to the party's core ideology, then the party will have a core. If they don't, uh, then it won't. And, you know, then you get into a sort of position like the old, I suppose listeners have to be of a great age, remember, the United Party, which essentially was not a bad organization. I mean, they were against the National Party, but they had no ideological core. So they had a conservative voice in the rural areas of white South Africa, a more liberal voice in the urban areas, and eventually the party fell apart. So if, if a party does not have a core, uh, then indeed that will happen unless it's in the happy position that it you know has so much patronage and so much uh, space that it governs that it really can be a bit of things. So to the extent that it might have issues with discovering or rediscovering its courts and exercise, it's got to go on because otherwise over time whatever gains the party's made will uh, decrease and then it will be stuck with very little indeed. 
Yeah, no, well, we, we can't disagree with you there. So in terms of leadership, so Musi, of course, is the leader. Uh, you spoke quite highly about him. I think you were on 702 earlier this week, if I'm not mistaken, saying that, uh, you know, he's got what it takes to become president, uh, maybe not the votes as such yet, but he's got the stature, he's got the, the, the oral skills. Yeah, I think he's got a lot of gifts was the word I used. Yes. And, I, you know, I've encouraged him. I'm not, he doesn't come to me for instruction, but we do get together from time to time and I, given my support because I happen to know there are only very few people in this country today alive who can tell you what it takes to lead the official opposition. It's not an easy job. So I try and encourage him where I can. I um, And I generally am supportive. But, you know, the, I don't sort of get involved in the day-to-day management issues or leadership of the party. No, sure. And, and my personal issue with, with Musi Mamani is that when you see him on stage in front of a church, he's great. He's got that preacher, that, that the way he talks, the, the, you know, the just power that emanates from him when he's talking about religion is really good. And then he talks in front of politics or, or, or he talks in front of a political crowd and it's, it's a lot more muted for some reason. And I'm wondering why the DA chooses to almost, um, negate, you know, that sense that he has when he's talking in church. Cause in church he's great, even though I don't believe what he says. But in politics, it's a bit more softer. Well, I can't answer that question. You'd have to speak to the people who um, who, who manage uh, his appearances. I really don't know. And I've never seen him in church, and I've only you know, occasionally seen him in parliament or in public. But uh, he always seems quite fired up on the occasions I've seen him. What do you make of the you know ongoing and it's, it's now more during your time and and, and it just it never stops really the ongoing accusations with regards to the racial diversity of the party uh, of course the left only really likes diversity of skin color and diversity of gender and all that they don't really like diversity of thought um, which is <laughs> ideally what you'd like in a political party um, but uh, but but what do you what do you make of of this this push that keeps coming back to the DA that uh, basically they they must reflect demographic? Yes, I think it's complete rubbish. Um, the uh, the idea that somehow you should have demographic proportional representation is absolutely favudian. It is the complete opposite of genuine diversity. That is sort of race racial bean counting and percentages. And uh, I completely disagree, the party should disagree, I don't know, we'll see this weekend whether it does, doesn't, with the idea that somehow demographics is destiny, that group membership is something that is imposed on you from birth through your race colour. It is completely antithetical, anathema, antagonistic to even the broadest interpretation of liberal democracy because what at the end of the day is liberal uh, principle? The foundational one has to be, it certainly was ever since I started in politics and developed uh, some thoughts of my own, that the individual is the touchstone of value in any society, not the group. And group think is is not just uh, group rights are very, very dangerous things. Of course, you've got to take into account communities. You've got to take into account history. I accept all that. I think the reason why it finds a place in some purchase in the DA is something I identified, you know, more than 10 years ago when I was still leader of the party. And it's a simple and perhaps chilling proposition. And that is when you have an organization like the ANC, which has, over the last two decades, become so hegemonic 
that it wants to control everything in society, and by and large, it has succeeded, if one's honest about it. So yeah. most newspapers, most radio stations in this country, uh, although they might you know, be very principled and brave on individual acts of malfeasance, such as we saw with Zuma, subscribe to, have bought into a hegemonic idea. And that basically is what is called transformation, which is one of the, in my view, most weasel words uh, in South Africa in the lexicon. By weasel words, I mean it's been all the real content of the word or the idea has been sucked out of it. And transformation doesn't stop at the you know doors of the Latuli house. It runs like a river right through South Africa, often like a sewer. I'm sorry to say in view of how it pollutes a lot of people's thinking. And I'm not talking about genuine transformation, where I mean that the ability and the necessity of change. I'm talking about a sort of reductio ab absurdum that the only form of transformation is when you have, you know, 80% of every institution coming from a certain racial group or anyone who comes from the majority group is deemed to be progressive and anyone coming from minority group is deemed to be reactionary. And, you know, the there are innumerable and very sad examples of this, and they go right back to the beginning of our democracy here. So to imagine that the DA could exist as some kind of island or some kind of citadel that would be removed from all that is wishful thinking. So that idea, because it is so prevalent and the ANC is very deliberately and its satraps and civil society have made it so, um, washes straight through the DA. The question is whether or not the party will have the intellectual courage to resist it becoming the defining characteristic because if that actually becomes, I'm not saying it is and I'm not saying it will be, but if it becomes the foundational, a foundational principle of the DA, then actually you've got to say the party really has ceased to exist as a definitive uh, counterforce for the intellectual fight or the political fight for the future, then it's just become another version of what's on offer from the governing party. Uh, and, that's, and that's an accusation uh, thrown quite constantly at the DA these days. Uh, but that's quite perceptive because I also, you know, transformation is very, uh, a weasel word. And that's the essence of state capture for me. So a lot of people make, you know, noise about the Guptas and that criminal enterprise. And, of course, they should be prosecuted. But the real state capture is is the National Democratic Revolution rhetoric that comes out where the hegemonic ideas of the society are determined by you know the the ANC NEC in essence and the policies of the ANC and if you're against those policies you're a racist and an apartheid apologist and that and those ideas have spread so thickly into the ether of a society I mean, you can just write something against BEE on on legal grounds for example and you become a pariah and um, and that that's the power of the ANC, which which people you know find it difficult to extract from. Well, you know, when I after the rather difficult election campaign in two thousand and four, when I went up against the hegemon called Tabo and Becky and his party, I was you know feeling a little bruised. But all the party had done better than done election four. And my great friend of mine, who's an advocate in Cape Town, phoned me up and said, "Well done, just stiffen your back for the next five years." And actually. You know, a stiff back and an erect posture is precisely what people expect of uh, opposition leadership. And if you haven't got that, if you're going to bow down or say, I don't know what the colloquial expression I remember in Afrikaans, because, you know, I come from the other side, 
then um, then you're really not fit for purpose. You're not uh, you're, you're not cut out to be opposition leadership. So yeah, I think it's I think it does require a degree of moral courage. But you know, heaven knows. Uh, there's been no shortage of that in human history, and there's been no shortage of that actually in South Africa, even under apartheid. Mm. Um, I think there was a tendency when democracy arrived on these shores or was uh, fought and won in 94 to assume that actually, you know, the essential battle had been won and everyone could go back to their, you know, peacetime jobs. Well, it's not so. It never was so, and it's certainly not so today. What do you make of some of the chilling effects that are happening with regards to expression, freedom of speech. I know you've written on uh, Vicky Momberg. Uh, that's a specific uh, case. Um, I haven't actually written about my colleague Douglas Gibson. Sorry. sorry. Um, but, uh, but I agree with him completely. I mean, I think she's a terrible racist. I also think she probably deserves psychiatric treatment rather than prison. And um, but I, I think uh, you know a very clear message is being sent down. Although I need to hasten to add, wearing the fact my I'm a detribalized uh, legal academic and attorney, that uh, what magistrates decide they are the lowest form of legal judicial officer. It is not binding on any other court. And I strongly suspect if she could find her lawyer that or get one to act for her, that she, that 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 sentence would be reversed on appeal because. Not because what she said wasn't abhorrent and pretty shocking, hmm. but you send people to jail for even those, you know, for criminal injury for three years or two years, and you have killers who <laughs> walk free or have less jail time. I don't understand that. They might. I, I obviously haven't seen the case, and I haven't. I've only read about it. I haven't looked at the judgment. So I always think one needs to study a judgment before you criticise it. So let me. Put yes. that in parenthetically. But I, what really shocked me, strangely enough, wasn't so much the judgment and the jail time, but actually that she was denied bail. That I found extraordinary because that seemed to be an exemplary kind of punishment which wasn't related to the actual facts because, you know, I know a bit about law. Uh, bail is only refused when you're a, when you're a, a flight risk or you're a, you're in danger to the community or you can tamper with witnesses, which None of which, you know, seemed remotely applicable mm. in that case. So I suspect the other factors at work there, and I think it's of a piece with a more general trend, although I'm always reminded that, you know, civil rights are meant for the worst of us, not the best of us. So let's assume, and I think it's a fairly good assumption, that Vicky Momberg is a pretty bad person because someone who can say what she said to the people she said it to, mm. has to be actuated by a great degree of racial malice. And, and be unapologetic and, all the way through. And be unapologetic and then double down it. So well, well, that's why I think what Douglas Gibson says, the correction probably should you know, be in a psychiatric institution. But um, that's where your human rights and civil rights get tested. Not, not, you know, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, for example, does not require the protection of uh, the Bill of Rights for his free speech, because, you know, 99.9% of what he says, most of humanity would agree with. Maybe not 99%, but a lot of it. Yeah. I, Vicky I, I, Momberg, you know, stands in a very isolated, and I suspect even within the minority, in a very uh, dark and probably intellectually depraved place. But absence of hate speech, which I suppose you could say what she said was hate speech, but then you've got to meet a whole lot of other tests, 
you know, we tend to protect uh, free speech in this country, and our constitution does. It doesn't protect hate speech. But even then, you've got to ask yourself, well, do you jail people for something like that? And, uh, yeah, I'd like to read the judgment. I'd like to see what the high court is going to do with it. Mm, what, what, what I think is, is more of an issue, and, you know, that's a specific case, but, but my concern and what I've tried to express to people who want to discuss it, obviously Twitter has not be, is no longer a place to discuss things, for example, uh, but is that once you – once you No, to start, Twitter, I'm, I'm, I'm on Twitter. I think we found each other on Twitter, and I have quite yeah. a few followers. I, I'm just amazed at the amount of false information that's peddled there. I mean, my, Ab- Absolutely. So, so, I saw several times that my father, who is 93 years old, mm. still sort of, you know, he's okay, and not that his actions as a judge – my father is routinely on the, among these Twitterati, describes a person who was responsible for the execution of Solomon Mishlangu. Well, it's complete rubbish. He, he wasn't in the, a judge in the trial. Sure, and I, be, I bet Mishlangu, it gets – He wasn't the judge. It's just unbelievable. I bet it gets thousands of retweets, right? One ignorant echo chamber after another. Sure. So, so I don't think even – I've decided after this past week actually that it's not actually even an echo chamber. It's a confirmation bias chamber. Um, and so my bigger concern is, is the chilling on free speech in general. Uh, and I think we can bring Winnie Mandela into this as a, as a, you know, um, uh, a current topic. Uh, Obviously she, she, she passed away or died. I don't know. It's apparently racist to say died. Um, and, uh, she, you know, she was obviously praised by uh, the people you would expect her to be praised by, but she was also praised by people you wouldn't expect her to be praised by. Um, I thought the DA's uh, take on 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 her uh, death was uh, well, on her legacy, so to speak, was was quite poor, um, and didn't emphasise some of the more heinous parts of her existence. Um, I but I do feel that a lot of that is influenced by this this sort of chilling of free speech where people feel I can't say X or Y. Well, I'm not going to comment on Winnie Mandela. I, in life, uh, we had some very, very severe disagreements with each other and uh, they were done in public. They were done, I did them to her face and she had some things to say about me and there it is. I don't think this is the right time to start having a contest over her legacy which I think is... uh, multi-layered because there's a period of mourning but I've, I've, i'm in the public domain on it, so not something i hid away not something i did behind her back it was all done in parliament it was done in the trc by me and she had some things to say about me and yeah that viewpoint about me and it's all there in fact i i think quite even-handedly described my many encounters with her in my book on the contrary in over 20 pages of and one chapter of that book and Gareth von Onselen in Politics Web has written a very interesting piece about how the Democratic Alliance has dealt with it. And I'm not going to comment specifically on her, but uh, let me give you an analogy, which I think uh, we can now make because it's uh, highly relevant. And the person was in many ways a very remarkable legislator and was regarded as the liberal line of the Senate and was very admirable in so many ways. I'm talking about Edward Kennedy. So when Edward Kennedy died in the United States, much cherished by the liberal fraternity, much mourned in Massachusetts, where he'd served as a senator for over 35 years, of course there were tributes and of course there was a great deal of um, affirmation for his life. But I'm not aware of a single newspaper, even the liberal New York Times or the 
San Francisco press, which didn't pretty prominently in the obituaries and in the comment, mention the fact that Chappaquiddick had cast a huge shadow of his career. In fact, it probably presented him, prevented him from becoming president of the yes. United States in 1980. Yeah, well, I think 84. No, 80. He okay. stood against Jimmy Carter in 1980 mm. for the Democratic nomination. Mm. And that, that was a Tried failed a attempt. Yeah. yeah. And so I have to say, and, you know, that's America. It's grown-up country. It's got very robust First Amendment rights, actually stronger than ours. But even the people who were, you know, most affirming of Edward Kennedy's really remarkable political life mentioned that fact because it was part woven into the tapestry and the controversies of his public life and career. Yeah, I just, uh, I those listeners who don't know, it, it just very briefly, he drove off a, a road into water, essentially with a woman in the car, left the car behind, and the woman actually didn't die of drowning. She suffocated in the, in the vehicle. He didn't call police for 12 hours. He just went home and slept. So it was quite a... 10 hours, 10 hours, but, but the, but the yeah. point is made. Yeah. And there was, there was allegations of a cover-up. I mean, well, it was a cover-up of, of questions, you know, how complicit was he? And that dogged his career and his public life, although obviously it didn't prevent him being re-elected senator for Massachusetts many times thereafter. But, uh, and that, you know, the, that is how a grown-up society deals with uh, some of its outsized figures. And, you know, maybe we're not a grown-up society. I don't know if we'll become one. But I think if you want to stunt the growth of a democracy, a nascent democracy like ours, then indeed – you chill free speech. And there's a lot of chilling of free speech, but I guess the fact you and I are having this conversation today is proof that uh, not all of society is cowed, not all of it conforms, and long may that continue. Look, you know, I have, although I'm quite polite these days, I'm now 61, I'm 10 years out of politics, I've been an ambassador, but I'm not entirely diplomatic. You know, I have outlets for my views. I, I'm contracted to write a column and one of the major newspaper groups in this country, Business Day, Sunday Times, Times Direct. Uh, you know, so it's not that there's only one viewpoint or voice in our society. Yeah, yeah and well, the problem for well, the problem is that I'm not too worried about the state trying to infringe my rights. It's about other people uh, that that chill it a lot more than the state uh, ever can at this point. They just don't have the capacity to. Uh, thankfully, I must add, at this very point. Um, so. You, you wrote a, a column about um, data from the Institute of Race Relations showing that 1% of respondents in a survey cared deeply about land reform. Uh, so if you had to have a, a guess about this expropriation without compensation motion, uh, is it a ploy to take out the EFF or is the ANC dedicating themselves to dilute property rights uh, quite, you know, quite strongly? Well, actually, I wrote another column subsequent to that one where I, because I was very involved in that fight around Section 25 of the Constitution, both at CODESA in 1993 and then again in the Constitutional Assembly in 1996. So I'm pretty much a veteran. I still have the scars in my back. And, and I have to say that not a single word that the EFF has uttered, although arguably they do it slightly more crudely than others, was not present in the chamber when the Constitution was being negotiated in 1996. They didn't wear red overalls or red berets, but they were called the land lobby, and uh, they were very loud and very vociferous and indeed enjoyed quite a lot of support in the ANC. And what you have in the current so-called property clause is a compromise between a right of property and a right of 
land reform in the name of expropriation and a rather watered down but still quite coherent uh, requirement for compensation but dependent on several factors. So it's not an unalloyed or unabridged right to property. It's a right not to have your property seized in an arbitrary fashion. And that's very important. And in fact, if we hadn't had that, there wouldn't have been a constitution. I'm not sure South Africa would have been a settled democracy. The concern I have is that somehow, and I, I try to um, reiterate this in a column in Business Day, there seems to be an idea that somehow all the constitution is is, is a sort of giving legalistic form to the Freedom Charter. Well, as Sir Ramaphosa said, on the day the constitution was agreed in Parliament, 8th of, November, 8th of May 1996, when he was chairman of the Constitutional Assembly, now he's the custodian, chief custodian of the constitution as president, he said, look, there's a fortunate paradox here. This constitution doesn't belong to any one party, and therefore it belongs to all the parties. And that was entirely correct. Um, again, you know, the penny sparrows or some black racist on the other side might need the protection of the constitution much more than people who have completely conventional views because the majority doesn't require a constitution. It's there for the people who have minority or individual rights in need of protection. Otherwise, the government could just legislate however it wanted to if it has a majority, which this one has by more than 60% of the seats. So there's some specific protections of constitution. If they get watered down further, then essentially you don't have a constitution with the paper it's written on, because as the Indian Supreme Court held way back in 1970, if you take away one fundamental right in the Constitution, you actually start collapsing the whole constitutional words that affect. And then you'll be living under an unconstitutional state, effectively, for all purposes. So I think this is quite a dangerous moment if this thing goes ahead. And it's interesting to see why it needs to go ahead. since The government or the state has many other weapons at its disposal, not, not least its own very poor record on land reform, on re uh, on on rehousing people, on reimagining agricultural products, projects, on giving away title, which it very seldom does to individual dis- previous dispossessed black landowners, and indeed an expropriation bill, which is quite generous to the state, and uh, is currently sitting with the president, and furthermore a court case adjudicated by the Constitutional Court uh, some three mm. years ago, the Agri-SA case, which actually narrows the grounds on which you can claim that there's a compensation is due under an expropriation because it narrows the grounds where you can say it's an expropriation at all. Mm. And ownership. What, yeah. what's your ownership so is it's, well, it's got a, That's a question of custodian. When does the state become a custodian or an owner? And the provisions under expropriation and compensation only kick in when the state is acting as an owner, not as a custodian. Right, that's a technical argument about mining rights and water rights, but it applies across the board. So there's a lot of generous provisioning for the state to embark on quite wholesale land reform projects without going around taking away people's property rights or rights of possession. And if so it clearly isn't needed for that purpose. It might be needed because some people want to level the score. I mean, you know, once we, I will quote Winnie Mandela, but something she said while she was alive, and it's certainly given voice more in the EFF today than the ANC, but some people in the ANC think so. She said that Mandela, her former husband Nelson, and the other ANC leaders were guilty in the 96 Constitution of an economic betrayal of blacks. And I think that, you know, 
the Section 25 of the Constitution is something that people see and think, well, let's water that down, throw it out, and then we've leveled the playing fields more in our favor. But it's a very dangerous stratagem, that, for the reasons I've said. Yeah, I mean, can I agree with you more? We we did a podcast on, on that uh, section a few weeks ago and uh, received a lot of, uh, um, yeah, a lot of emails concerning it. Uh, so, Tony, uh, last last question from me. Uh, long term, um, I doubt DA could win twenty nineteen. If I'm really honest with you, um, but long term, do you see uh, coalitions being the supreme political mechanism for South Africa? Well, I don't know. Look, I, yeah, you don't. You, no time in human history has any political party in this country ever, under the previous dispensation or this one, gone from you know twenty-two percent to fifty percent. So, quietly, the DA is not going to more than double its support in one election, particularly with Ramaphosa in charge of the other side. Might have had more chance under Zuma. It's clearly much less of a prospect now. I also frankly don't think the ANC will go below 50% in the next election in 2019 on a national level. Some things might happen in the provinces. Of course, at local government, we have got a whole lot of coalitions or non-coalitions, one of which is under huge stress in Port Elizabeth. But um, so I, you know, I, I think multi-party governments generally can be useful. They're very difficult to make coherent because everyone has a different core principle, and then you land up with a sort of uh, a, a bare-bones agreement on, you know, what you're going to do, and there's not much you can do to advance your your program in, in a real sense. And that's probably why you don't see in Johannesburg or Pretoria, you know, clear DA policies being implemented, because one of the few things the EFF and the ANC and or the DA and the IFP and whoever else in that agreement can agree on is that they don't like corruption. So they take strong action against corruption. That's a very good thing, of course, for citizens and for governance purposes. But when you get beyond that, well, what do you agree upon? And they probably don't agree on very much. So I think coalitions can work, but they're also quite difficult to introduce radical political change via a coalition government. Yeah, and we've seen the danger that uh coalitions or at least agreements uh, have, you know, PE being the example recently with uh, the attempt to remove Ethel Trollope because uh, the EFF uh, uh, were angry um, with the DA, so they, they, they attempted to punish them. Um, and, and I think that's where political disagreement comes in and, and having some maturity. Um, in terms of the country as a whole, you know, we're, we're in a bit of a hole, so to speak. Um, We've uh, got a big uh, and rising uh, debt to GDP ratio. Uh, we've, uh, we've 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 got potential issues uh, around uh, just monetary flows. Uh, we've got uh, problems with uh, foreign direct investment based on some uh, political decisions that are are being made. Um, and obviously, twenty five years of of governing, in my opinion, towards socialism, uh, has not helped us in in the least. Uh, where do you think uh, we end up sort of 10 to 15 years down the line? Well, at the risk of making an obvious point, um, we, we're running out of money or we've run out of money and yeah. there's a 50 billion rand fiscal black hole in the uh, revenue uh, accounts at the moment, state public accounts. And we're very narrow tax base, as you know, of uh, relatively very few personal taxpayers propping up, you know, a great number of people who are not in the tax net for reasons of unemployment or poverty. 
and um, we have very low levels of foreign direct investment in this country. And the history of South African political economy going back more than 100 years is that whenever there's been an investment strike against the country, it's usually the government has fallen. Uh, well, that hasn't happened yet. I, I think Ramaphosa is going to be a sugar rush because uh, he does restore quite a lot of confidence uh, among some key economic players, both here and overseas. And we saw recently with the Moody's rating agency and the uh, World Bank and the IMF. So I think those are not unimportant things. But we can only actually come away from the cliff face, which we're on, we haven't fallen over it, which I think we would have done if the Zuma rule had continued, uh, if we make deep and meaningful structural reforms. And going back to your first question about Suramposa, I mean, Suramposa, and it's a strength and a weakness, is basically a deal maker. He's a consensus seeker, and he believes that, you know, if you put people together, you can get an outcome, and everyone will sign on for joint responsibility. And I think there's something to be said for that at certain moments. But our economy requires a lot of shock therapy. Our public sector wage bill needs to be drastically pruned. We need to get people off social grants and into work. We can't get people into work unless we actually make the creation of jobs a more uh, attractive proposition for employers, not just for employees or would-be employees. And, and I go down a whole long list, which we don't have time to elaborate on in this interview. So I don't see that happening. And absent of those, you know, significant reforms, as, as I've seen it, you know, and it's not easy. I mean, just look at Emmanuel Macron in France. He's got his essentially elected on his own platform. He went out, he destroyed the two-party system there, created his own party, stood on a reform platform, and now trying to take on the public sector unions in the, in the, in the French and the train drivers and so on. And he's having a very difficult time, but he might or might not succeed. The country that I know best next South Africa is where I was posted for three plus years, Argentina. It's got its first non-Peronist, which uh, is like Peronists like the ANC, president in uh, two decades. And he's also on a reform agenda and not having an easy time of it because the vested interests, the unions, the corporatist levels, uh, elements of society push against it. And I don't know whether Macron or Macri will succeed, but you kind of need that approach here. And even if you have it, it's not guaranteed to succeed. Yeah, and that's true of most democracies. Unfortunately, not everyone could be uh, Margaret Thatcher in this regard. So talking about Margaret Thatcher, um, my, this is my final question, Tony. Sorry for keeping you. Um, yes, I'm going to go. But the data shows that most South Africans appear to be small C conservatives worried about the economy, jobs, education, security, uh, the usual things that one would be worried about as a citizen. Is there space for a for a small, intransigent, capitalist, um, libertarian-type party? I know the DP failed in, in 94 with those sort of principles, but now do you think there could be a chance? Well, I think it's necessary to have that voice. Whether that voice is articulated inside the DA is uh, or, or is stifled inside the DA, we will have to see. But I certainly think that voice and those principles need to be heard. But uh, – You've also got to be quite pragmatic. I mean, you've got to, you know, you, you can, you can be a very specialist niche party, but then that's what you are. You're a niche party. If you aspire to govern, you must have a core, but you must be, have a degree of flexibility. And I suppose, you know, that's a question. And I, frankly, I think inside the DA, you've seen quite a lot of views. I think some people think, well, 
we that we must get these reforms through because that will then make sure the party is liberal democratic and then perhaps other people say we can't get them through. And I think that the, the, the history of the DA, the story of the DA is not concluded yet. But whether it's inside the DA or outside the DA, I'm not aware of any society that's worthwhile, democratic, e- economically prosperous or free, which hasn't had that voice in the very center of the political discourse. And South Africa is not exempt from that requirement either. Thank you, Tony. Really appreciate it. I know you are on a tight uh, timeline, and uh, we really do appreciate you coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Great to chat. Thanks. Ciao. Thanks Bye. very much. Cheers, eh? Okay, so uh, that was some uh, quite insightful, interesting stuff. Well, I think in, in, in he had a two-minute uh, monotone about the individual. And it was monologue. A, and a monologue. <laughs> sorry, not monotone. And it was the most... How can I explain? Direct and clear political speech, for lack of a better word, yeah. about fundamental principles of democracy Absolutely. that I've heard in 20 years. And very refreshing because I know he's not in politics anymore, but uh, if, if, and I know there are DA people who listen to this show. Um, guys, why can't you just say that? Like stuff like that, um, you know, you have a base and a lot of your base believes those things. So just verbalize that and, and then we can start having conversations about doubling social grants, but, um, and, and you know, deeper conversations about what that means. Uh, but, but, but at least let us know where you stand uh, from a principled perspective. Yeah. Is it about the ind- individual or is it about uh, diversity of, of biological factors? Um, um, collective, collectivism. And we have to choose between the two. So, I mean, I, yeah, I, I really enjoyed speaking to Tony, and uh, I'm glad he, he arrived on the scene, and I hope our listeners enjoyed that too. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as always, if you enjoyed the show, you can support us on uh, Patreon, uh, and uh, we do appreciate all those people who are already donating towards the show. Uh we also are obviously on all the social media platforms. You can find us on Twitter at Renegade underscore reports on Facebook, both a group, uh, Renegade Report discussion group where we discuss the podcast. I'm sure this one will pick up quite a lot of traction, uh, and also a page. You can find Ramon at Roman Kavanagh, myself at Jonathan underscore wit. Thank you very much for listening and we'll get you next time. Cheers. This is cliffcentral.com.